Heavenly Father, we thank You again for this wonderful time of being able to come together as brothers and sisters in Christ. It's, it truly is a privilege for us and we are so thankful for it. Um, we thank You for time of worship. We thank You now as our Sunday school go out to um, be in the Word of God there and our, our teen Bible class, Lord. We just pray for them, pray that their hearts will be open to the Word of God, that it will sink deep into their hearts. And Lord, we pray for their Sunday school teachers um, and their teachers. Lord, we thank you for their commitment to our children and our young people in our church. We just pray you'll give the teachers the words to say, that um, the words that they bring will be your words, Lord, and that, um, that you'll give them peace and clarity of thought and mind as they do that. And Lord, we pray too for Jeremy as he brings the word of God to us this morning, Lord. Um, we pray that our hearts will be open. We pray our hearts will be attentive and desire to sit under the Word of God and learn. And Lord, we just pray for Jeremy as he brings that Word, Lord, that you will give him peace, give him um, clarity as he brings those words that you have laid on his heart. And we thank you for this time. We thank you for the Word of God and the blessing that it is to each and every one of us. We ask this now in, in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'd like to ask our Sunday school uh, kids to um, head on out. And Jeremy, thank you for um, coming this morning. Uh, thank you very much, Gavin. If you've got your Bibles with you, would you turn with me to Nehemiah uh, chapter 4? Nehemiah chapter 4. Uh, I believe you were there last week, so uh, you hopefully it'll open to you in that space. Hey, I'm, I'm so excited to be here with you today. Um, I feel like I've got a whole lot of connections here with Hokanui. Um, uh, I, we, Kath and I moved here from our home province of Manawatu back in 1996. I forget how many years ago, six children ago, I know that much. And uh, my first job was actually up here at Chartwell Veterinary Services. And we worked there for six years and uh, we had a really enjoyable time. It could have been the fact that we had no children in those days, uh, may have given a little reflection on it. But we loved our time living in Hamilton. And uh, I had come to Hokanui uh, on a number of occasions um, back in the day. And so uh, seven years ago, when we had the opportunity for me to change profession and, and come into pastoring and move back to the Waikato, in many ways, it was an easy decision for us. But I'm also really excited because I hear just so many lovely stories of what is happening here in your community. And as someone who pastors and is involved in leadership of a church and these network of churches, I'm just so encouraged so I encourage you to come here and hear your centeredness on the Word. I love singing with you this morning, your choice of songs, how they're Christ-centered. So I just want to encourage you, and I hope this message is encouraging for you this morning because God is doing good things in your midst and He wants you to be a part of it, each and every one of you. And I think this is a big part of what the message of Nehemiah is teaching us. I want to start with a, uh, with a, a story um, to kick us off, because we're going to cover a lot of territory this morning, but I want to have a bit of a framing little thought for you about how we go about it. And thank you, Caleb, for that last song. I didn't know you were going to do that, but it was, this is my story. And the thing is that we think of ourselves as, as really logical kind of people, don't we? Right? We make decisions based on logic and rationally working kind of through things, right? Um, but generally, we're not. We behave and we make our decisions based on the story that we believe, the narrative tale that we tell ourselves, 
And that drives and motivates us in particular areas. Let me give you a current example. The 14th of May, 1948, at midnight, the last of the British troops pulled out of an area called Mandatory Palestine. As they exited that land, the Jewish people who lived there, the Zionists who'd been coming from all different parts of the world to try and establish a homeland for the Jewish people, declared independence. It was the first day of the modern Israeli nation. Now, there's two narratives that exist there with two people groups that are part of it. And the first one, they call it, the Palestinians call it, the Nakba. Anyone know what that means? Catastrophe. So when they look at it, they go, 700,000 of the Palestinian people were forced out of the land by the Israeli nation. This is the story that they, they tell themselves. Were forced out of their land, their beautiful land, where they had abundance and prosperity and crops and peacefulness. And so it's a catastrophe that they were forced out of this land by this Israeli nation. When the Hebrew people talk about it, they have a day that they call Yom Hatzmaut. Anyway, doesn't matter. It's the day of independence. It's actually preceded by what they call their memorial day. So they have a memorial day where they go, we remember the cost. We remember the cost of all the Jewish people all around the world that had to come and flee their land and come back to their homeland. We remember all the soldiers who have died to, to, in the various wars that have taken place to maintain our independence, even though we live around, it's totally surrounded by nations who hate us. And so they have this celebration that they have to remember. And as part of that, they tell the story about how those 700,000 Palestinians that left, they all left peacefully out of their own choice. Hmm. There's two different narratives going on there, isn't it? Now, I tell you that uh, for two reasons. Firstly, uh, good luck to anyone who's negotiating peace between those two groups of people, <laughs> right? Because this is what they teach their children in their schools. This is what they teach their generations that are coming through. And as the generations coming through, they hold it even stronger and stronger and stronger. But I tell you it because I want you to think, what is the story that you believe that motivates your daily behaviour? that motivates what you do and the choices that you make in your life? What is the story that inhabits it? Because I think Nehemiah, as we go through this, had this strong underlying story and it drove him. It drove him to be able to cope with opposition. It be able to drove him to, to see what needed to be done and put the things, right things in place to do it. So Nehemiah is usually or, or often used to teach leadership skills. And it is a great book for teaching leadership skills. And you should read it and learn them from it. But what I want to do is I want to contrast what I would call effective leadership from what I'm going to call revelatory leadership. Now, most leadership books that you will read are what I call effective leadership. How to win friends and influence people. 
put these steps in place and it will make you a more effective organisation. And a lot of them are very good advice. But when I take leadership classes, I ask people, what is leadership? What is leadership? Well, leadership by definition is that you have people who follow you. Makes sense, doesn't it? But my question to you is, leadership takes you somewhere. So if I have a group of people who are following me, if I want to call it that, I am leading them somewhere, but I'm also leading them how I'm taking them where I am taking them. So you could be an effective leader, but leading people down a bad path. I think God calls us to all be effective leaders, but he says, do you have the story of where you are leading people to? There was a very popular uh, verse that was used for a number of years by uh, leaders who usually would never read the King James Version of the Bible, but they, they took Proverbs 29, 18, where there is no vision, the people perish. And then they created all these visions of how they should do church and all this sort of stuff. But when you actually read what it says, it says, where there is no revelation, the people cast off restraint. Now that's different. That says, if you don't have God's story in you, God's story about what is going on, then you will end up in paths where you shouldn't be. You will absorb what is going on and what is the fad of the day in the culture that sits around you. And there is plenty of them, false lies that come through in our culture today. You, you want to hear about yourself and about how we're individual and love you, all this sort of stuff that comes through. You will absorb that unless you have a revelation from God and understand a story. So let's think it for a second about Nehemiah. What was his story? Well, see, Nehemiah is in the flow of history. He sort of sits in the middle of the Old Testament and in, in, in chronology, really, it should sit near the end of it, right? What has happened is this is the return of the exile of the people of Israel. But the first exile in the Bible is where? Where is the first exile in Scripture? If you were to be asked that question. Where would you say? Out of Eden. So your narrative arc through the whole is exile. Is this idea that there is a place that I should be and I should live and I should act. And that was originally this Garden of Eden. But because God said this one thing, don't do that. Please don't do that. Not because I'm setting up some arbitrary rule, because if you do that, you're going away from what I, how I uh, set things up. And God said, well, I can't leave them in that place. I have to exile them. But God is always this promise that sits in there. There's always this little promise that's coming all the way through. It builds and builds and builds till it gets to Jesus Christ. A big part of it is when Abraham is called out of this land in the Middle East to come and inhabit this land in the nation of Israel. And then this nation grows from them and it goes down to, ex, um, to the land of Egypt and then through this exodus it is brought out. And there's this amazing promise in Exodus 19. And this is God talking to his chosen people. Now listen to the language in this. He says, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, how I carried you on eagles' wings. By the way, this is where J.R. Tolkien got his Lord of the Rings analogy from, from this verse, and brought you to myself. Do you see this? This is a relational thing. 
God is saying, I'm doing these things so that you would return to me. This is personal. He says, now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. That phrase means this. If you were leaving your house, uh, if your house was burning down and you were able to grab one thing out of your house, whatever you grabbed out of your house, you would call your most treasured possession. The thing that you value above anything else, God is saying to this nation, you are my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So there's a specialness about this people group, right? That God is saying, I am bringing you to me, but it's conditional if you obey me fully and keep my covenant. What happened with this people group, (laughs) right? Always falling away, always falling away, always turning away from this God who was reaching out to them and loving them. In Ezekiel 22, it says this, will your courage endure, your hands be strong in the day I deal with you? I, the Lord, have spoken and I will do it. I will disperse you among the nations and scatter you through the countries and I will put an end to your uncleanness. So God is going to deliberately send them out of the land that he had given them to possess where they were meant to be a beacon of hope for the nations. But he says, because of your uncleanness, I have to send you out. So Nehemiah knows this story. He's sitting in exile away from his land where he should live, away from the people group that he should be part of, and away from the nation that should be the example to the world of God. And so in his mind, as he's turned, his heart is turned to return to that land, can you, can you hear, can you feel what Nehemiah, what drove him, what he thought about? how that would make his decisions each and every day. In Nehemiah 2, it says this, that helps frame it a little bit for it. He's saying this, he said, I had not told anyone what God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. So God laid on his heart to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild that city. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in what? Let's try it again. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in what? Disgrace. What's disgrace? Embarrassment. This city that should be the centre place of what God is doing in the world with a group of people who should be the example to the world of what is going on is in disgrace. It's in disgrace. And it burned Nehemiah's heart to see it. Physically, but spiritually. You see, what will drive Nehemiah in his effective leadership is a revelatory leadership. And what I want you to be thinking about as we go very quickly through these chapters and then apply it at the end, is what burns in your soul? I'm reading a book at the moment by John Stott called Our Guilty Silence. And he says in there, the, 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 the one thing that should drive us and motivate us for evangelism ahead of anything else is passion for the name of God. Isn't that interesting? 
passion for the Name of God, a jealousy that our God's Name should be lifted up and exalted among this world. That should be what burns us and we have passion about. Do you have that revelation in your heart? Is that something you wake up and it burns within you? If it's not, see, this is how our stories, our narratives drive us and motivate us. All right, let's get into the story. And we're going to, as I say, move fairly quickly. And I'll just make comment as we're kind of going along. But we're in chapter four here. And we see as he's setting up to rebuild the walls that sit around this. The temple has had some a rebuilding project on it. But he comes there and he sees the a city in those days, if it has no walls around it, is open to any enemies coming on through. And so a wall is a physical barrier, but it represents something much more than that. When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews and in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore the wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite who was at his side said, what are they building? Even a fox climbing up on it would break down their wall of stones. So we're set up here with these people that sit around it. And there's three that are described, two are described here. One is Sanballat, who's the Samaritan. So from the Northern Kingdom, the relatives of these Jewish people, Jewish in heritage, but they'd set up a separate temple and so they had some of the similar beliefs, but they, they were a people group that sat in the north of Jerusalem. We see Tobiah here, who's an Ammonite, which is modern-day Jordan. Amman is the capital of modern-day Jordan. And uh, it's a, 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 a flick of the word of Ammonite where it kind of comes from. So this is a group, and they're surrounded. And then there's another one that's described as an Arab, which is possibly further south, right? But they're surrounded by these groups here and they don't want them to re-establish the city of Jerusalem. What is going, Nehemiah going to do in the face of this opposition? He prays. He says, hear us, our God, for we are despised. Turn the insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in the land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all of its heart. And you've seen here, um, as it lead up to the story, how they all came together in this collective thing and, and everybody did their part and he names them all through chapter three, right? There's everybody building this wall and, and doing their bit in it because they could see Nehemiah had put in them this goal of what was going on with it. But they knew as well as this physical thing that was going on, that there was a spiritual battle that sat underneath it. There were people here who were against what God was doing. And to push through that opposition, they had to stay with God. Verse seven, but when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. What will Nehemiah do? It's kind of hard for us to live where we live in a peaceful, prosperous country, right? 
I know we have Australians next to us, but we don't live directly across. I saw a photo the other day of this Jewish town where it was looking straight across to Gaza, like you could throw a stone kind of over there, to live with these people that hate you and despise you and don't want you to exist. This is what Nehemiah is facing. Now, verse 9 is a verse that I quote quite often because I think it's such a fascinating verse. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Because there's two things going on there. A temptation sometimes is to go, well, I will put my faith and trust in God. God will be the one who will protect me. God will be the one who will sort this out. So we pray, which is a very good thing to do, right? But we say, well, God is sovereign and He's divine, He's sovereign, He will sort this thing out for me. But amongst divine sovereignty is something called human responsibility. <laughs> so we pray to our God and we trust in God and we trust that God will look after us. But what do we do? We post a guard. And these two things are not in conflict. They can be for us sometimes when we think about it. Do both, <laughs> right? What God is calling you to, do it. If your finances need to sort out, pray to God to help you out, but sort your finances out, right? If there's things that you are meant to do, pray to God that He will open up ways and help you, whatever. But, but go out and get some things done with it. This is not an excuse to not live and do activity in the way that God calls it to. So we see divine sovereignty and human responsibility sitting quite comfortably side by side here with Nehemiah. Let's carry on. Verse 10. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out and there's so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Have you ever rebuilt a stone wall? I mean, lifting stones, they didn't have nice little health and safety gloves there, Right? They were lifting stones, building this wall. But this is hard work, right? Strength is giving out. Also, our enemies said, before they know it or see us, we'll be right there among them and we'll kill them and put an end to the work. This is the environment that is sitting in this space. Verse 14, after I looked things over, I stood up and said to the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your families, your sons and daughters, your wives and your homes. Can you see what he's appealing to? If you have people stuck in themselves and in their just temporary kind of environment, you can't appeal to this. If we just stay in our own little cocoons, we will shrivel and die. We need a big understanding of what God is up to. Nehemiah had it. He knew the path and tra trajectory of all the promises of God that had come through and been fulfilled. How much more do we have it today? How much more? How much more of these scriptures do we have? How much more do we have of the fulfillment of these promises in the person and work of Jesus Christ? We live the other side, way the other side of this. Our God is great and awesome. Awesome. 
They say for much of the uh, Christian world, they are afraid of the loaded gun. In the West, we're afraid of the raised eyebrow. You know what I'm talking about. We fear this opposition that sits there, don't we? I don't want someone to think poorly of me. I don't want someone to think I'm one of those kooky religious sort of people. We face so little opposition, and and I'm not dismissing this. We, We say thank you that we live in a place where we can worship freely and without persecution. But I tell you what, I don't know that that's always good for our hearts. When Alistair Begg talked about it, and he says this, when we, God's people, do God's work in God's way, you will encounter opposition. I don't know if you're encountering opposition in your life at the moment, but if you're not, I'm going to challenge you today. Why not? What are you not doing that means that your life is easy? Seriously? If we are God's people doing God's work in God's way, opposition is inevitable. Verse 15, when our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated, we all returned to the wall, each to our own work. But you see, as much as there's opposition, when we do, as God's people, God's work in God's way, not only will we have opposition, but we will have favour. And I mean favour not in that everything goes right for you in your life, but I tell you what, you will see God at action in your life and you will start having stories, story after story of God at work because He will work through you. But it's not unless you get out there and do the work of God. So these are the external opposition, the external challenges. We come into chapter 5. And I say this as we come into it. The most destructive things for a church are internal rather than external. James talks about this at the end of chapter 3 and chapter 4. He just says, where selfish ambition and envy exist, you'll just have all kinds of dysfunction. Start of chapter four, he goes, why do you have fighting and quarrels among you? Tell you what, because there's these desires that sit in your heart, these selfish desires, right? Ambition to get over top of somebody else, envy because you want what somebody else gets. He says, what happens is you don't have what you want. And so what happens is he uses this word, he says, so you go out and you kill. You're happy to destroy things to get things that you want. The internal things that happen within A church community can be so destructive. And as leaders, well, actually, I'm not just going to say leaders. Everybody has a responsibility in this space. When you see that at work, when you hear unnecessary gossip, you have a responsibility to your community to call it out, right? Now, let's read what was happening in this particular instance. Nehemiah 5, now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous 
If in order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and that our children are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. They were selling their own people to stay alive. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because of our fields and our vineyards belong to others. So in this instance, there was this small group there that were lording it over others and they had, and they had to have nots and they just took off them. They took possessions off them. They charged the money at exorbitant interest. And so these people here in the midst of a famine and this building project where they were being asked to do stuff were unable. And so they come to Nehemiah and this is what, how Nehemiah responds. When I heard their outcry in these charges, I was what? Very angry. They talk about righteous anger. I struggle with the righteous anger part of it, right? Too much of my anger has nothing to do with righteousness. But injustice, wherever it is, is a call on the Christian heart. And it is destructive to community, both Christian community, but wider community in it. So Nehemiah sees this and he says he was moved appropriately to anger. So he says to them, these leaders, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? Now we could look at it and say, well, greed is just a, a, a bad character trait, right? If you have stuff, you should just be generous. But Nehemiah puts it where it is. It's actually a spiritual problem. I don't fear God. I don't trust God. I don't believe in God and what He is saying about how I should think about the stuff that I have. I think of my stuff as my stuff. I don't live in the eternal. I live in the temporary. I live in the now. And it's not saying you give all of your stuff away. It's just saying I have a generous heart because I have a generous God who gives out of His riches to me. Paul applies that in the person of Jesus Christ, that out of God's wealth, he gives us his riches. But it's an operating principle. Generosity is meant to sit at the heart of it. And Nehemiah saw this in the community about how destructive this was. And it is. It's very destructive. So they say, oh, we will give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and the officials take an oath to what they had promised I also shook out of the folds of my robe and said, in this way, may God shake out of their house and possessions anyone who does not keep this promise. So may such a person be shaken out and emptied. At this, the whole assembly said, amen and praise the Lord and the people did as they had promised. Nehemiah stepped into that space and spoke truth into power. And he was a person, by the way, of power. He was given this authority by the king Artaxerxes to be in that space. So he could speak appropriately across to them, and he appealed in a way that they listened. But the earlier governors, that's the ones preceding him, 
placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine. Their assistants also lorded it over the people. You heard that phrase before? Jesus talked about that one day, didn't he? He goes to his disciples, you see those Gentiles, how they lorded over them, over the people? And the great ones exercise authority. Do you remember how he goes with this? But not so with you. You want to be great? And by the way, he's not saying don't. Uh, he's saying like, like you can have an idea of being great. You can have goals and, and decide you want, be said, you want to be a kingdom value person. Here's what it looks like. You become a servant. You don't take a position of responsibility for your own sake. You become a servant so that when you use or exercise any authority or power, it is for the purpose of God and for the goodness of the people. And whenever you are given the, the, the extraordinary uh, advantage of responsibility, we have to keep that in mind or you're abusing what is being called about here. And that's what they did. And he calls it out. But out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. All my men were assembled there for the work. We did not acquire any land. When Charles Swindle wrote his book on Nehemiah, he called it, hand me another brick. Hand me another brick. Hand me another brick. Leadership, effective leadership, is a leader who understands what is going on amongst the people and is with them and working with them. And he says, remember me with favour, my God, for all I have done for these people. And that's who we work for. All right, we're rocking along. We're into chapter six. We're going well. Then the fifth time, so it comes to chapter six and we get more opposition that comes from the outside of it. And it says this, then the fifth time Sanballat sent his aid to me with the same message. And in his hand was an unsealed letter in which was written, it is reported among the nations and Geshem says it true that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt and therefore you are building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you're about to become their king and have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. Now listen to this. Now this report will get back to the king, Artaxerxes. So come, let us meet together. Do you see what he's doing? This enemy is saying, hey, I'm going to tell lies about you to spread false rumours to say that you are trying to overpower the great king Artaxerxes. So it hasn't succeeded in the things that they have done before. So they have upped their game in another way with outright threats, deception, bribery. And then in the next thing, they're actually going to, the, the, the bribery part of it is they're going to bribe a prophet to come to him and do a false prophecy in it and spiritualise the whole thing to try and pull down. You might think opposition comes in little patches and bits and pieces with it, but there's always opposition that's coming from the work of God because there is a father of lies who sits in behind it and he does not want the construction work that God is doing for his kingdom to succeed. And so there's this frightening element that's always putting in play with it. And, he, and Nehemiah stands tall and he stands courageous. So they get to verse 15 of chapter six and it says, the wall was completed 
on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. That is phenomenal. When all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realised that this work had been done with the help of our God. When I tell stories sometimes of God at work to non-Christian people, they're helpful because you can tell about miraculous stories that happen about the way that God has opened things up that are often very hard for people to deny. And it's very interesting in our world, I've talked about, you know, there's this rise of the new atheists and there's all these people who there's no belief in God. But the reality is the, the rise of atheism has stalled for a very long period of time and it's still a very, very small group. There's a large number of people in our population who are spiritual, but you ask them who that God is, they have no idea who that God is. And when you start telling stories about this personal God and about the way he works, about the way he works in your life, the way you see him opening doors and making things happen, it is a powerful testimony about God. It's another reason why you do God's work (laughs) so that you have these stories that you can tell and that you can share with many people. All right, last thing I want to say in Nehemiah 7, and then I want to pull this together with a couple of New Testament passages. Um, It tells in there that there's a whole lot of people in that nation who were connected with Tobiah, one of their enemies. And they were sending stuff to him, and they were sending stuff back, and they were still picking holes in Nehemiah. But this is very interesting. It says, After the wall had been rebuilt and I had set the doors in place, the gatekeepers, the musicians, and the Levites were appointed, and I put in charge of Jerusalem my brother Hanani, along with Hananiah, the commander of the citadel. Listen to this. Because he was a man of integrity and feared God more than most people do. We've been talking about effective leadership versus revelatory leadership. And the temptation very much is to put in effective leaders. Wow, they'll get an outcome for me. And we should look for effective leaders. But when Nehemiah looks for a leader, he says this, I looked for somebody who feared God more than most people. And I don't know whether he's going, most people don't fear God. (laughs) Or he's just going to comparing it and going, hey, this is someone who's a bit kind of ahead of the curve here. But it's interesting in Acts when they're looking for people to serve within the community, they said, look for people who are full of the Spirit. When you're looking for leaders to develop and grow, you are looking for people who have the fear of God in them, who are full of the Spirit, who understand what revelatory leadership is, who understand what the grand story of what God is doing is. Look for those people and promote those people. Peter is the one who applies this idea of exile the most strongly in the New Testament. And he says this, as you, this is talking to us now, as the people this side of Christ, he says, as you people come to him, the living stone, Jesus Christ, rejected by mankind, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also like living stones are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Here's a story. Each and every one here sitting in this room, you are a living stone being built, not in a physical wall around Jerusalem, but into a spiritual 
building that worships God. Verse nine, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. God's what? What does it say there? Special possession. It picks up Exodus 19, that treasured possession. The thing that God said in the Old Testament was the most precious thing to Him. Now He says it about you. Do you think about that in your story? That you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. Once you weren't a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you received mercy. And then he says this, dear friends, I urge you as what? Foreigners and exiles. We're not quite home yet, but we have our marching orders of what to do. I want to leave you with Ephesians 3, which <clears throat> is uh, a picture that motivates me a lot. I want you to imagine that there's a classroom and there's a very few, a number of elements in a class. There's a teacher, right? There's a setting. There's a group of pupils. There's a, a lesson. Uh, there's a, a lesson being taught, a subject. And then often you'll have the objective lesson of what you're being taught about as an example kind of for it. I want you to think of those things as we read this verse. Ephesians 3 says this. His, that's God's intent, was that now through the church, which Hukunui Bible Church is a local manifestation of this global church that is going on, the manifold wisdom of God should be known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, who's the teacher? Who's the teacher? This is the easiest one. God, all right, we're away. God's the teacher, right? Who are the students? The rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. I don't completely get what that is, but there is some supernatural classroom up there where God is teaching this group What's the subject? What's the subject? We, no, not us yet. What's the subject? The wisdom of God. God is up there in a classroom with this group and he's going, check out my wisdom. Check out the smart thing that I am doing in this world. And do you know what he's using as an example? What's his object lesson? You. You. The church of God. Isn't that crazy? That he would say, my wisdom is shown by taking the sinful, rebellious, exiled group of people who did not love me, who disobeyed me, but through the person and work of Jesus Christ have been bought with a price. And because they get that and they understand that, they've formed this community of people where they show my forgiveness and my love and my mercy. This is our story. This is our song. This is 
how we praise our Saviour all day long by getting up every day and it being our story that motivates us, that drives us, that burns us. Nehemiah had a story and it was a good grand story. But I want you to know that in Jesus Christ, your story is even greater. What are you going to do this week with your story? Let me pray. Father, we thank you for this grand story of Scripture. That even though we were rebels and exiled from you and from the place that we should live in, that you bring us back. You bring us back as your children. And ultimately, one day you will take us to be into that place where we will call home to be with you forever. I just pray for everybody here in this room who's part of Hokanui Bible Church. I pray, Lord, that you would inspire them this day, this week, that they would know your grand story. And then they would find their place as a living stone being built into this house of God, how their story relates to that, how you're using them in every little place where they operate, where they work, where they live, who they speak to. Lord, would we be driven by your revelation in our life? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.